Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the relationship between ecological awareness and the paranormal. My guest is Dr. Jack Hunter, who is currently affiliated with the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at the University of Chester in the United Kingdom. He is the editor of a new book called Greening the Paranormal, Exploring the Ecology of Extraordinary Experience. In addition, he is the author of Engaging the Anomalous, collected essays on anthropology, the paranormal, mediumship, and extraordinary experience. He's co-editor with Dr. David Luke of Talking with the Spirits, Ethnographies, from between the worlds. And he is the founder of the journal Paranthropology, which he founded as a graduate student and has now been in regular publication for over 10 years. And uh, <laughs> as someone who has gone through the graduate school experience myself, carving out a unique path in parapsychology, I have great admiration for what he has done. This is an internet interview, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Jack. It's a pleasure to be with you today. It's a pleasure to be here, too. Thank you for having me. Uh, so we'll be talking about ecological awareness and and the paranormal. And I, I think, as you point out in your introduction uh, to your book, Greening the Paranormal, these two subjects are not normally thought of as having any relationship. But actually, you go so far as to suggest that the resistance to uh, the paranormal, particularly in academia, is very much akin to the resistance we have in our culture to a, a stronger uh, ecological uh, awareness and, I suppose, activism as well. I do mention in the introduction to the book that they're not subjects that you really think would mesh together. And actually, I came at, at this kind of conjunction from an interesting perspective as well. A few years ago, I started to research, uh, well, I started to work on a project called One School, One Planet which is a, kind of like a permaculture project. And I don't know if you know much about permaculture, but it's kind of like a, a holistic approach to agriculture and horticulture. And it's all about sort of building up food security and, and that kind of thing, sustainable communities. So this project that I was involved in was to do with incorporating permaculture principles into the education context, uh, specifically through our a, a local secondary school here. But what I found when I started to talk to people about permaculture and their experiences and how they became interested in it and you know how they became interested in growing plants and building community gardens and things like that a lot of the time they came at it from this kind of spiritual perspective and in particular there's this one guy that I spoke to who um, was an expert in willow cultivation so his whole business had been built up around willow and we asked him how how it was that he'd come to kind of be involved in willow production and he said that it was through a kind of a process of synchronicities. He bought this land 
and there was a, like a boggy patch on the land and he was trying to think of the best things to do. And he said through the process of observing and interacting with the landscape, it was almost as though the, the willow had communicated to him that this would be the, the you know, the, the good model for his business. So I thought, oh, this is interesting. This starts to sound a little bit like things that I've researched in the past, like to do with animism and communication with, uh, you know, non-human consciousness, those kinds of things. Uh, so I, I decided to delve a little bit deeper. And I did a sort of a preliminary survey of permaculture practitioners on the internet. And I found that a lot of permaculture practitioners had also had similar kinds of experiences through, you know, through gardening, through engaging with the environment and the landscape. They'd had these kind of extraordinary experiences of nature connection. So there seemed to be something going on there. And then this book kind of, you know, spilled out of that. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the points that you make is that uh, there may be a, a form of consciousness going on in uh, the non-human world and particularly the plant world and even among the interrelationship between uh, plants and fungi that uh, it, it could represent a, a form of consciousness that, that's very profound, but of which we are barely aware yeah, that's one of the interesting things about this line of research. When you start to investigate the relationship between human beings and plants, for example, I mean, we've co-evolved with plants for millions and millions of years, but it's only now in the 21st century that we're beginning to, you know, or that the mainstream established scientific worldview is, is starting to take seriously the possibility that plants have some kind of a, a sentience or consciousness. I mean, there were, obviously, we could go back thousands of years and look at shamanism and all of those traditions where they, you know, regularly and routinely engage with plants. But in terms of the Western world, you know, our relationship with plants has been purely based on, you know, basically dominion over plants, using them for our own purposes and not taking, you know, seriously the possibility that there might be something more going on. There's you know, something that we would consider to be mind or consciousness in plants. So, yeah, it's pretty pretty interesting idea. One of the difficulties that you point out uh, for anthropologists who are in, endeavoring to understand these things is, is that there's a tradition in anthropology, I think you refer to it as developmentalism, uh, something like that, in, in, in which especially in the 19th century, anthropologists who began exploring animistic consciousness took a, an, a tone of superiority, like this is something very primitive and today we are rational and well beyond this sort of superstitious form of thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Developmentalism is this idea that Western civilization is kind of like the, the dominant worldview and all other ways of interpreting the world have already been superseded by science and rationalism and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, it's quite, it's quite an old idea in anthropology and it's very much been, you know, thrown to the sidelines these days. Anthropologists don't generally tend to work from those kinds of, you know, understandings of, of cultural evolution. But the kind of hangover of this has played into the, you know, continues into the 21st century. And it's kind of like this the kind of like the mainstream scientific worldview is to reject these things as primitive and irrational. Even if anthropologists don't think in those terms anymore, that's the kind of the mainstream perspective. And I think if we want to try to rebuild our connection with the natural world and all of this, you know, all of the climate change demonstrations that are going on at the moment, and it's never been kind of more 
current in people's minds. And I think if we want to really put that into action, then we're going to have to start thinking about the world in a different way and then opening ourselves up to the possibility that, you know, the plants that we live with that support us are also conscious in some way and that we all might, in fact, be contributing towards kind of a greater, you know, global consciousness. Mm-hmm. Another point that you make is that uh, high strangeness is it is a factor that it often scares people away when phenomena are reported that seem so bizarre, so uh, gross that, that that you just can't possibly fit them into a, a rational framework. The tendency is to dismiss them out of hand, and you're suggesting that as researchers in ecology and uh, the paranormal, the the stranger the phenomena, the more unbelievable it is. Probably the more important it is to investigate. Yeah, definitely. And this comes back to this idea about plant consciousness as well. It's something that's so far removed from our kind of normal everyday understanding of plants that I think it has the potential to really kind of, you know, shake up our worldview, even if on an individual basis. So, you know, kind of one of the things that I would like with my book is that for people to read it who maybe have never thought about plants in that kind of way but to show them that actually you know plants are radically more conscious than we've given them credit for i think that counts as a part of this kind of high strangeness thing it's much you know it's much more highly strange than our mainstream understanding of plants but i think also you know high strangeness the high strangeness of the paranormal in general is you know something that's really important that's central to the paranormal and actually i think that high strangeness is maybe the thing that really defines the paranormal as distinct from other forms of extraordinary experience like you know maybe like religious experiences and things like that where high strangeness the baffling nature of them is kind of what defines the paranormal and it kind of it asks us to kind of to look for models and explanations from you know that that go beyond our mainstream perspectives is that it challenges our you know our most taken for granted models of reality so strongly now, I've been involved in um, UFO investigations, and uh, a lot of people who, who work in that field are, are probably not particularly engaged in ecology. People think of UFOs as somehow having to do with extraterrestrial phenomenon. Uh, I think you're suggesting that... Uh, for all we know, the uh, manifestations associated with aliens and, and UFOs may be a, a reflection of our own interaction with the environment. I'm not the first person to suggest this. I mean, people like Paul Devereaux, for example, who wrote the foreword to the book, he's got a long history of researching Earth lights and the idea that UFOs might actually be you know, some kind of anomalous Earth phenomenon. And then we have people like um, John Mack, who in the 1990s, 1980s and 1990s was researching alien abductions and he found that you know there were all of these different strands within abduction narratives that had to do with the ecological crisis. I mean that he was t- he was thinking about that, you know, 10 20 years ago and today we see it, you know, escalating so, you know, so vividly in the media as well. You know, that it's it's interesting that these UFO experiences 20 30 years ago were kind of I don't want to say precognitively, but, you know, presaging what's happening today. Even going back to the 50s, actually, with the, the contactees. 
You know, as I recall back in the 1950s, uh, contactees often reported meetings with tall Nordic-looking uh, aliens with long blonde hair who warned about nuclear war. And <laughs> that seemed to, to be the issue back then. Now the issue is... Uh, more ecological, but the the truth is we live in a very unusual age. I, when I was a child, people weren't quite a, as much aware of how close uh, humanity as as a whole is coming to the uh, possibility of self-annihilation. Yeah, it's just terrifying, really, when you think about it in those terms. But I think that, you know, these, although it seems like a, a massive, frightening thing, there are certain things that we can do to make a difference, you know, from on, on an individual level. And I think that's kind of where my interest in, interest in spirituality and the paranormal and religion comes in. Because if we can address our relationship with the earth, with the environment, from this perspective, from this inner core perspective, you know, of our personal uh, beliefs about the world and our experience of the world, then we can really make a change to the way that we think about our relationship with it all. If we come at it from, you know, the core inside of ourselves, our inner beliefs, and realize that there's something more to it than we've given it credit for, then maybe we can make a difference in that way. Uh, you describe uh, the goals that were set by the Paris Accords, uh, the idea that we have to uh, limit the temperature increase on the planet to no more than two degrees Celsius from where it was in pre-industrial times and uh, how difficult it will be to achieve even that goal. And even if all the world's governments were to uh, be in alignment with regard to that goal, it's still necessary for individuals to be involved at, at a personal level and at, a, at the level of smaller organizations. Mm, yeah. That ties in with the work that I've been doing with uh, you know, secondary schools and trying to encourage young people to build up their relationship through practically engaging with the world. But, you know, I think that is what the, the main message of the Paris Agreement is, is, that, you know, governments and all of those kinds of big organizations can do what they do. But at the end of the day, if we want to make a difference, then we all have to come up with our own innovative approaches to it. And I think, again, that's why it's quite nice to ta tag this idea onto the paranormal you know, milieu, because there's this whole group of people who are interested in, you know, one thing. And that actually, when you look at the paranormal, what it gives you is kind of like a, an animistic worldview. So if people realized that, that what they were interested in and what they were talking about was very similar to, you know, more ancient traditions of building relationships with earth spirits or whatever, then maybe they would feel, you know, encouraged to go out and do something too. The a whole idea of spiritual beings, of course, is uh, well accepted as a uh, anthropological phenomenon, but I think in the field of parapsychology, it's still very controversial. A lot of parapsychologists will accept extrasensory perception, but, but draw a line at going so far as to talk about autonomous spiritual entities. Yeah, and it gets very difficult to tell the difference between psi capabilities and the possibility of, you know, discarnate entities as well. It's one of the big challenges in parapsychology is the psi versus uh, survival debate or the survival versus super psi. So that's the idea that you can't really tell the difference between a medium gathering information from a discarnate source or whether they're using some kind of, you know, remote viewing capability or, you know, telepathy or whatever. And when it comes down to it, 
you know, this is a this is a big challenge. How do we how do we tell the difference? Could we tell the difference? Uh, is there a difference? <laughs> you know, it uh, strikes me that if if you accept the existence of extrasensory perception, or uh, even if you choose to think of it as, as synchronicity, you're talking about uh, a larger world of consciousness in in any case. And, and I think that's the point you're, you're making with your, your book on, you know, the ecology of extraordinary experience. Yeah. Uh, it comes back to the point that we were making at the beginning about how the ontological assumptions that underlie the rejection of the paranormal and underlie the, you know, the ecological crisis are the same. And I think, it, you know, it's to do with understanding the limits of our, you know, our self of thinking of ourselves either as individual bounded creatures that have no connection to the world, you know, like um, objective science tries to make out that we are, or that we are more kind of participatory beings, that we, that the boundaries between us and the outside world are more fluid. And, you know, this is the big, the big challenge, isn't it? The big, the big battle of ideas that's going on <laughs> in science and that underlies all of these issues that we're facing. Well, we live in a very unusual age. In fact, at this very moment, you and I are both sitting in front of our computer screens, uh, as, and also people who will be viewing, thousands of people, uh, in, in the near future will be viewing us on their computer screens. Uh, these days, humans spend so much time in front of the screen and, and, there's a sense, even though, you know, screens, I suppose, are part of nature, even though they're man-made. Uh, but yet there's a sense in, in which being in front of the screen all the time reinforces the notion that we are somehow separate from the natural world. Yeah, and it makes us think that, you know, all that's happening within this box here is is reality, when actually reality is behind the screen, <laughs> We get we get so focused in. And again, it's a kind of it's like a form of reductionism. You know, we're narrowing our focus so much that we're ignoring all of the connections and all of the you know, more interesting things that are going on around us. It's the same with you know when we talk about the paranormal or whether we talk about ecology. It's noticing those extra things that are going on, and I think that's what we need to try and tap back into, reconnecting with our sense of place. You know, where we are now it doesn't matter where we are. We could be in the city, we could be in the countryside, we could be just in a room, but just reconnecting with that, you know, immediate grounding in the place that we are, I think is really important. And it's interesting that that gives rise to, I mean, this is the kind of advice that people who want to have psychic experiences get, but it's also the same advice that people who want to feel nature connectedness get. We need to ground ourselves in the place that we are. It's just interesting, all these little overlaps. Well, as uh, an anthropologist, I, I imagine you're aware of the fact that uh, it seems to be the case that indigenous people around the world are uh, sort of at the forefront of the ecology movement. The, the very idea of our, our connection with nature seems to be uh, embedded in their culture much more than it is in uh, uh, Western civilization. Yeah, definitely. And this is an interesting thing because there's a lot of tension, obviously, or a lot of worry about the idea of cultural appropriation. And, you know, we don't want to be taking someone else's ideas from another culture and then artificially kind of implanting it into our own context because that doesn't work. And that's not really what I'm, you know, it's not what I'm suggesting. It's interesting. We should look to indigenous cultures 
as you know inspiration but what we really need to be doing is reconnecting with our own local place building up our own understanding of our environment not importing the you know the, the shamanistic concepts of you know some um, amazonian tribe and implanting them on top of whales although it would probably be it'd be interesting but i don't think it would be connecting in the right way and actually when we look at the landscape around us and especially here in wales there are already lots of uh, sort of like the folklore and the features of the landscape that already have this kind of i suppose we could call it a more indigenous understanding built into them it's all there ready and waiting for our culture to kind of like come back and re-engage with it uh, so I think that's another important aspect of all of this is to reconnect with the folklore of our, you know, our local environments and our landscape. You, you know, one of the things that y- your book addressed is that when you begin to explore what we could call the super sensible world, the world of spirits and entities, it's not always friendly. There are, there are predators out there. The UFO abduction literature is full of uh, all sorts of uh, horrifying experiences, uh, as a matter of fact. And uh, you suggest that one of the things we need to uh, acknowledge uh, and honor is is that predators have a, a role in nature, that it, predators are part of the natural world, and, and we need to uh, learn to live uh, in, in harmony. That's a funny word when we talk about predators, but actually I, I think that's the best word, in harmony with them. Yeah, this is the thing. We need to understand that nature exists. We talk about sort of um, in ecology, dynamic equilibrium, that it's not it's not just a happy, rosy balance. There's always there's killing in nature and there is, you know, there's growth and rebirth, but they're all part of the same process. And I think that we need to, you know, we need to be aware of that. But that's not to say that predation and competition are the kind of sole drivers of, of ecology. Because if we look at things like mycorrhizal fungi and the relationships that build up between, you know, between these uh, these small fungus that can't produce their own food because they don't photosynthesize and trees and they form this relationship where they connect on the roots. We're talking about um, cooperation there. There seems to be a lot of cooperation. If we look again, another principle of ecology is something called succession, where if you leave a bare plot of land you know, and then allow the weeds and things to grow. Eventually, those weeds will kind of die, but they prepare the soil so that other successive species can move in. And again, we're not seeing competition. I mean, we're not seeing competition there. We're seeing kind of a, a cooperative evolution. And I think really that's where we, that's where our focus should be, you know, coming together as a species, working together to produce the conditions that are right for well, human flourishing and, you know, future generations and all of those kind of things. Now, you you really uh, did provide a very vivid description in, in your book of these micro-rhizal fungi. Uh, as, as I recall, it, it, they are attached to the roots of about 90% of all uh, trees and bushes. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, it's an, it's an amazing fact. And they, they, they form this kind of network under the soil. Some people call it the, the wood wide web that link trees together and they can send signals through to each other. You know, if there is a, there are pests and things coming in, they can send chemical signals to warn other trees to put up their defenses. Um, they share nutrients through these. So even um, there's an amazing book called The Secret Life of Trees by uh, Peter Volaban. And uh, in the book, he describes how um 
trees live in communities and basically they they will look after even tree stumps you know trees that have been cut down that to from our perspective are completely dead but the root system still below the surface is still alive and because they can't photosynthesize anymore all of their fellows around them will use this network of mycorrhizal fungi to share out nutrients amongst the whole community even the the dead ones so you know it, it just opens up the possibility that trees are um social beings as well as you know as well as having consciousness which might be a step too far for some people but they also live in communities um they share you know they cooperate with each other they do compete sometimes but that's just life <laughs> yeah i think it's an amazing thing you know, your mention of the book, The Secret Life of Trees, of course, reminds me of uh, when I was about your age, a huge bestseller was The, the Secret Life of Plants, uh, which, which went into great detail about uh, the potential of uh, consciousness in the uh, plant world and uh, the interaction between uh, humans and plants at the psychic level. Yeah, I mean, that book is amazing. Reference it in the introduction, and they all the, they draw on the work of uh, Cleve Baxter and his polygraph experiments with plants. And the thing that I find so interesting about that is that you know he comes to the conclusion from his experiments that plants have got some he calls it like a primary perception or something, primary consciousness. Um, but then he goes that step further and he's like, and that actually the plants seem to be able to you know predict my my mood on certain occasions, or they you know they had some kind of a telepathic thing going on. So Cleve Baxter is really interesting because he pushes the envelope even further and he opens up, you know, beyond just plant consciousness to plant the plant paranormal. And I think with the, all of the new research that's going on with plant neurobiology at the moment and the work of people like Monica Gagliano um, and others, um, that, you know, we're going to have to go back and reconsider all of this stuff that might have been brushed aside as woo-woo, you know, 20, 30 years ago, that, you know, plant telepathy. I mean, now that science is coming to the conclusion that plant sentience is real, then it opens up the possibility again. Because as I recall, I think it must have been a few decades ago, a big article was published, I think, in Science Magazine, saying that attempts to replicate Baxter's work had all failed. Well, yeah. I mean, other people reported positive results as well. It's the same, you know. Same problem we have with most parapsychology experiments. And it could be, I mean, one of the arguments in parapsychology is that for the, you know, the, um, the experimenter effect, where your intentions and your beliefs also influence the experiment. And if plants are conscious living beings, you know, with their own thoughts and emotions, then they're also going to react to you know, the thoughts and emotions and intentions of the experimenter. So all that we can do is do more research, not shut that kind of thing down, but open it up and and begin to explore again. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the interesting points that you made is that uh, we're at a point in time now where, uh, of course, there's a, an enormous popular interest in, in ecology, and even, uh, I think, probably this very day, huge protest movements going on around the world to begin to address the uh, issue of climate change. Uh, many of the world's uh, great religious leaders, including Pope Francis, have argued for a, uh, a dialogue concerning the climate uh, amongst religious leaders. 
the point you make is that there's a huge percentage of the population who uh, really are more engaged in what you might call a, a personal spiritual path and uh, not organized religion at all. And this is where uh, uh, the approaches that you've mentioned, an interest in animism, an interest in personal spiritual awareness, uh, can tie into uh, an ecological awareness. Yeah. Um, there's a really great book by um, Bron Taylor called Dark Green Religion. It's published nearly 10 years ago now, actually, I think, thereabouts. And um, in this book, he talks about this um, kind of wellspring of religious or spiritual or whatever we want to call it, creativity that comes out of engagement with the environment. And I think that's where that's where we, we want to be moving towards, if people understanding that their interactions with the world, you know, are coming from this kind of inner spiritual place. I don't, you know, I don't want to use these kinds of words, they're tricky words, but you know what I'm trying to say, our immediate relationship with the world. And, if, you know, we could tap into all of the people who deeply, deeply believe in, um, you know, God or Allah or whatever, the deep people, you know, it doesn't matter what religion or what belief we're talking about, but if we can make the connection between that deep inner belief and the natural environment, then I think we'd be onto a winner <laughs> with that. Uh, you tell this wonderful story about uh, a fellow who was regarded as one of the founders of the conservation movement, I think back in the 19th century, who uh was, I think, working for the National Park Service or something, and, and his job was basically to thin out the wolf population, but, uh, he, he experienced a kind of conversion experience after, after killing a wolf. Yeah, this is, um, Aldo Leopold, and you're right, people do think of him kind of like as the father of the modern conservation movement. And yeah, he was, um, basically a wildlife warden. He, his job was making sure that the wolf population was down so that hunting could, you know, people could go out and hunt deer. And originally he thought that, you know, if you reduce the population of wolves, then that would mean that the population of deer would increase. Um, but it, he had this experience one time when he'd shot this wolf, they went over to the wolf, and for the first time he'd actually seen the wolf kind of dying. You know, previously he'd shot wolves and they'd been in the distance that they were dead when he got there, but this time he saw the wolf's eyes and he said that he saw this green fire dying in the wolf's eye and that he felt that, you know, from this interaction with this dying wolf that he'd, he'd had this uh, kind of like a message from the mountain, but also from the wolf itself that this was wrong, that he, you know, he needed to stop doing this. And, you know, more recent, re further down the line, more recent research into things like trophic cascades and keystone species and all of those kind of things reveal that, you know, you can't take out these apex predators. If you do take out the wolves, then the whole system collapses from the top down because they have an important role in kind of regulating and modulating ecosystem dynamics. So it was really interesting that he had this kind of, you know, we could almost call it a mystical experience, a mystical conversion. He saw the green fire. He had a communication from the mountain and the wolf. And, you know, that changed his whole opinion. Another story that uh, is told in in your book uh, is involves a chief of the uh, I believe it's the Iowa nation in uh, North America, uh, and this is typical I think of many shamanistic stories where uh, the plants 
uh, and the rocks even will speak to the the shaman, and often uh, the message it has to do with uh, various medicinal properties of uh, plants and minerals. Yeah, I mean we can look at you know the the stories of where ayahuasca comes from. You know, it's a it's a tried and tested story; everyone knows it. But they, you know they ask the shaman where it comes from, and they say that the plants told them. I mean there are other stories. There's one story I tell about this um, a rock that this medicine man had that he would tap with a tap with a little knife and the, the mouth in the rock would open up and uh, he would take medicine out and you know distribute it to the people it's really interesting connections there's another interesting native american story in lance foster's chapter um which i think is really which is really important for the way that we think about our relationship with these other persons that live in the landscape and he talks about um this native chief called plenty coup um, and they were kind of trying to cross this river one day and they were looking for a safe place to cross and they came to this area and they, they on their journey across they kind of felt like they were being pulled down under the water and uh, they you know had their kind of like their little tussle with it and eventually they were released but the, the important thing about the story was that plenty coup recognized that there was this you know other than human person living in the river there and that there was not a good place to cross but they weren't going to go back and try and hunt it or kill it or dissect it or bring it back into labs or anything like that. That wasn't their thing. They're like, they recognized the presence of this creature, of, of this intelligence or however you want to think about it. And then they kind of move on and leave it alone. And I think that there's a powerful message there that we need to leave space in the landscape, you know, untouched wilderness places where nature can take its course and do what it wants to do and where these other kinds of consciousness intelligence are able to flourish without us getting involved in it <laughs> i think that's something that we we can take away from this now, now that was a particularly fascinating story as i recall the uh, native americans are crossing this river they're on on a raid to steal horses from uh, the lakota sioux who are nearby and uh as they're crossing the river, they're on their horses. Their horses, I guess, are swimming across the river. They're riding their horses, and they describe the, a kind of levitation. The horses are lifted right up above the the river, and uh, they feel trapped. Uh, they they manage to escape, and then they uh, just go on and continue with their with their raid, and and just accept that this as bizarre as this experience was, it was a natural experience, and time to move on. They didn't scratch their heads over uh, <laughs> how to explain it in, in scientific terms. Exactly. Yeah, I think that you know we we can take something from that story from that approach. I think paranormal research in general can take something from that approach. You know, that we've got to leave space for these things. We don't want to be trying to, you know, prove them all the time and, you know, dissect them and break them apart. They're a part of the natural world. Well, I I know in my own career uh, here in the United States in parapsychology, one of the biggest obstacles is, I guess I'd call it the horse laugh, that uh, it's it's often used by people who, who would like to attack parapsychology. It's just like, laugh them out of the academy. And because some of these things seem so absurd on the face, face of it, uh, I imagine that uh, I know parapsychology flourishes much more in the United Kingdom, but I imagine you're still up against the same kind of obstinate skepticism. Yeah, I mean, it's true. There is still skepticism, but in the UK in particular, we've got quite um, 
quite a fertile move, well, group of people, really, who are involved in paranormal research. And there are a few um, university departments that are specifically dedicated to parapsychology. Um, there's the Center for the Study of Anomalous Psychological Processes at Northampton, and they're very active. They get new PhD students all the time. But what I like to do is try and, you know, cross-fertilize a little bit and bring in, because a lot of anthropologists have been interested in, you know, paranormal experiences or religious experiences, mystical experiences, shamanism, and all of that kind of stuff. So there's this whole other body of literature from a different discipline. So I'm interested in the kind of merging of trying to get parapsychologists to pay attention to the cross-cultural literature and trying to get the cross-cultural anthropologists and those guys to become aware of the parapsychological stuff. Unfortunately, we have got some, you know, a nice bit of overlap going on here in the UK. Um, in the university that I'm affiliated with, we've got the Alistair Hardy Religious Experience Research Centre. And, um, you know, they collected over 6,000 accounts of religious experiences. And in amongst those things, there's all of these crazy, you know, that we've got the normal, like religious, normal, you know, religious experiences that have got, you know, Christian iconography or whatever, the mainstream religions. But we also have this whole other, I would call them the high strangeness cases that are, you know, paranormal experiences and UFO encounters all mixed up with the religious experiences. So we've got, a, in, the, in the UK at least, we have a, a nice fertile community of academic researchers who are willing to engage with this stuff seriously. So I'm very lucky, really. Well, I thought one of the strongest features of, of your book, Greening the Paranormal, is the idea that researchers into the paranormal can learn a great deal by looking at the mechanisms that have been uncovered in the field of ecology, the very complex interrelationships of many different life forms, as, as is understood in ecology, probably also uh, applies to understanding the mysteries of uh, psychic and paranormal phenomena. Yeah, I think um, one of the, the, the important things about ecology as a science and the kind of what it offers to us as researchers is a kind of, you know, a holistic perspective, basically, uh, understanding the interconnections between multiple different processes simultaneously and not trying to separate phenomena out of their wider context. And this ties back to what I was trying to do with anthropology and the paranormal and with the Paranthropology Journal was to show that paranormal experiences are embedded within cultural systems. And I think the work that I've been doing more recently with thinking about ecology is to show then how those cultural systems are also enmeshed within biological and, you know, cosmic systems as well, all the way up and all the way down. Um, but that's the thing that ecology gives us is this view of an interconnected, basically an interconnected living system. And I think parapsychology has tended to towards the kind of reductionist approach they want to you know single down on the you know on psi as a as a, a distinct thing when actually it's embedded within many many other things so yeah that's that's where i think ecology's main contribution lies well, Dr. Jack Hunter, this has been an enlightening conversation. Uh, I have to commend you on this approach. I hope that uh, many people read your book, Greening the Paranormal, particularly in my country. Uh, I, I think uh, we have a, a lot to learn from uh, the pioneering work that you've been doing. So thank you so much for being with me. That's great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.